sick film. <laughs> this film is messed up. It really up. is. <laughs> it really is. I think it's the most horror mm-hmm. Spielberg movie. Well, I haven't seen the original Poltergeist, but I feel like this is probably at least close to that. This is certainly gorier and weirder. Yeah. Fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are continuing our miniseries, Bums, uh, Find a Way. Covering every film in the Jurassic Park series, we will fully spoil today's film, The Lost World Jurassic Park, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Emmett, how are you doing? I'm doing so wonderfully. I loved this movie as a kid. Mm. This movie and the last movie, and then especially the next movie coming up, it's almost making me want to introduce a new ranking system. Instead of being like, thumbs up, thumbs down on this movie, on this viewing, right? You're like, Mm -hmm. if I've seen this movie before... Has it gotten better or worse since the last time I Mm. watched it? And if it's gotten better, even if I didn't like it that much, but if it's gotten better than the last time I watched it, then it's a thumbs up. And if it's gotten worse, even if I still liked it, it's a thumbs down. That's just a little thing I was thinking about watching this movie for some reason. No reason at all. (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs) Okay, I'm good. Thank you for asking. I think about that too, sort of with like how I evaluate movies inside a franchise versus like other regular movies. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, you know, when we do these long franchises, it's like a lot of the ratings would be in like the two or three star category. And I'm like, well, I do love these movies, (laughs) but maybe like, I don't know, maybe you're a little bit harsher on them or maybe you just expect different things out of like this movie than out of whatever else Mm. but i would say to your ranking system both the original jurassic park and this movie the lost world were worse than i remembered or i liked less than i remembered but i think part of that is also that i haven't watched them as an adult well i had seen this one not super recently i don't think but probably as Mm. at least sometime in my late teens through now i had seen it because i remembered it being not as great as i had remembered it being when i was a little kid Mm. thinking that it was the coolest Mm -hmm. thing ever thinking like the fact that there were more velociraptors just like more velociraptors equals more fun for me and i was like ooh, Mm -hmm. it had like the cool I'm not sure if you remember, but some of the cassettes had the cool, like, hologram cover on them, where if you, like, moved it a certain way, like, it would show a dinosaur coming out of it. Uh Uh-huh. This movie was in my grandmom's house, and, like, it had the cool cover on it. I could only watch it when I was at her house, unlike the original, which I could watch, like, whenever. So, like, it had that allure to it, you know? Uh So I remembered it being, like, super cool. And then I could also remember watching it being like, oh, not as cool. And then this time being like, oh, even when I said not as cool before, I was underselling how not cool it was. It's even worse. (laughs) I was really like, wow, this is bad. And so I got really sad. 
And then I immediately rewatched the next movie in the series. I watched Jurassic Park 3 being like, if this has also fallen so far, it's going to be a real sad times. I can't tell you right now, but I'll save that for the next episode. <laughs> okay. Okay. I loved this one as a kid. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying to me. Mm. It was my favorite. And I had committed it a lot more to memory. Like, I loved the first one, too. I was never super hot on the third one, but I certainly watched it a good handful of times as a kid. Uh, But this is the one I had definitely seen the most, remembered the most of. And I was very nervous to rewatch it because seeing the first one as an adult, I still really liked it and thought it was great. But especially the action, I would say, did not really do much for me, did not engage me a ton. The effects, the CGI too, you know. I mean, we're talking about 30 years ago, so I don't think that's like a shock. So I was so nervous going into it. I put it on and I'm like getting through like the first 20 minutes and I'm kind of having this battle in my head where like I really want this movie to be great and I'm trying to make the case for it like being the Uh five star masterpiece underappreciated sequel like secretly better than the first one and like all of the criticisms of it are invalid right and it's like just not really singing and then we get like 40 minutes in and i'm like wow there's a lot of weird stuff going on then we get to the t-rex battle which i remember as being Mm. like the most incredible action scene i think i had ever seen in eddie yeah as a kid it still held up, but it was like much slower. But I think like the escalation of it is pretty good. And so then yeah. I was just like, okay. And then there's like another like 10 minutes of weird stuff happening. And then there's like an hour of the movie where just all of the plot disappears. And it's basically just everyone on the island trying to like survive or escape the island. And I thought all of that stuff was great. Yeah. For like the last hour of the movie. I was like, oh, this holds up so well. It's so much fun. It's like career best Spielberg action horror. And I loved it all. But you also have to like get through the first hour to get there, which definitely like did not hold up. I would agree. But I also think that some of the dumb action at the end is even like slowed down in pace weirdly by modern standards as well. Mm hmm. There's, like, all of this stuff that they're trying to do with making the Hunters, like, real characters. Like, with that deleted scene, and, like, them having, like, this whole weird, like, subplot. But there's, like, nothing going on there, and it doesn't really make sense. What what are your thoughts on this bald guy? This bald Hunter guy who needs to bring down the buck? I think it's a pretty good performance, the character doesn't do too much for me, you know? Uh-huh. So I was so confused at the end. What is, like, the thing, the person who died or, like, the end of his arc when he's just, like, dejected and leaves? What is uh-huh. that over? Because his friend, his his best friend, too, he was on the T-Rex hunt with, got eaten. <laughs> he got chomped. The guy with the glasses. But I don't even remember. I don't remember him having a friend. The guy he's up sitting in, like, the little castle thing with. When they're waiting, they're like, object, object, and jump out of the tree. 
I guess I remember that there was someone there he was talking to, but I had no idea that they were friends or that that guy got eaten or that that meant anything to him at all. Exactly. It's so utterly unclear. <laughs> Shout out to the bonkers score, though, for making everything like not really matter for the last hour. <laughs> You're just like, he, he, he's just like, he's like, all right, I got you here. There was a plot. Hey, kids, remember all that sugar you just had at the concession stand? Like, we're going to ramp this score up to 12 and just let loose for the Rapser sequence. The score, the John Williams score on this, I think is incredible. And I love that he just writes another Jurassic Park score for this, like, main theme and uses that as the main theme all the way through. And doesn't even, like, go back to the old one and play it until I think it, like, plays over the end credits. That's such a cool move. Okay, so I'm on the record here as tending to like sequels, you know? I think I've talked about this before, that I will generally go in being more excited about a sequel than an original film. Because you've already done the work of establishing the characters, establishing the world, getting them to where they need to be. In the sequel, you can just like throw in a couple new elements and watch them all play off of each other. I love that. This movie has only one of the same characters in an entirely different world. It is the weirdest pitch for a sequel. The insane amount of lore dumping that goes on to explain this bizarre, different thing we're doing in this movie is totally wild. It's nuts, and you're... You're so right because it is it has almost all of the flaws of a sequel with almost none of the advantages because a good sequel will have like most of the same characters so you don't have to do a bunch of new character introduction. Mm-hmm. If it's good, it makes sense, it will be carrying over major plot elements and conflicts from the previous one. You know, like you think about Empire Strikes Back being a classic perfect sequel. This is like, what the hell? What do you, what is going on in the, wait, what is going on in the first 20 minutes of this movie? What, who is the antagonist and what are they trying to do at the beginning here? (laughs) Who is the antagonist? Well, there's an awesome opening scene. There's just like classic Spielberg, awesome opening three minutes Mm -hmm. of a little girl getting eaten by compies on the beach. I love that. I've always loved that. I think it's a complete cop-out that they tell us later in newscaster voiceover that she is actually fine. She's fine, actually. That's Shout-out to Camilla Bell, who will later go on to star in mm-hmm. such movies as Push and 10,000 BC, where she's like a cavewoman in 10,000 BC. I highly recommend that movie. <laughs> If anybody goes and watches that movie and then has anything to say to me about it, please don't. I haven't seen it in years. But I'm pretty sure it holds up. However, I think you are the only person who has ever seen it. So I am the only person. You would be the one who knows if it's good or not. Also, it's a gonzo reference, as you say, to the first island. The first thing we see on screen, the opening first opening credit says 87 miles from Isla Nublar, which, let me tell you, everybody, (laughs) unless you are paying very close attention to the first movie, you have not nary a clue 
where that is, you're, you're like, okay, cool. It's an island that's 87 miles away from some other thing that I have no, no idea or context for. Isla Nublar, the original Spanish for cloudy island, makes sense, you know. Island hidden from the rest of the world, perhaps. An island where cloudy things are going on. Isla Sonar, Michael Crichton's genius, Spanish for Sarcasm Island, which I guess is the island he would send Ian Malcolm to. That's gorgeous. That's some, that's some true beauty right there. To your other point here, do we even ever hear anything about InGen in the first movie? Or is that a, a new name for this in this one? I think that's the side on the side of the helicopters. I think that's on the side of laboratories and stuff. Okay. I mean, it's definitely in the books in the first one, so I can't really remember whether it is or not. I mean, but that is what it's called. Okay, so what are they doing? Basically, once all the cards are on the table, which isn't until the last 10 minutes of this movie. Yeah. You basically have found out that there was a second island where they were breeding the dinosaurs, I think, or testing the dinosaurs, and then they just bring some over to the park. Kind of unclear. Hammond's evil nephew has taken over his company and is planning to make another theme park in San Diego in a gigantic amphitheater in San Diego that was built before the first movie that no one ever knew about. And there is, like, a team of guys who are trying to, like, cage up the dinosaurs and take them on a big boat, King Kong style, to San Diego. Our heroes are basically sent there to stop them, but don't know that think they're going there to like take pictures of a couple dinosaurs and then are actually like four people and a stowaway kid who are supposed to i mean how what on earth are they even supposed to like really do to stop like a military unit of like 70 dudes yeah and they they're supposed to like break the dinosaurs free do you know how many of those guys might have been killed during that dinosaur stampede i mean that's like cold-blooded murder right there this is another one of like the themes of this movie. Mm. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. You've read the book. It seems to me in the first one that the dinosaurs are really a metaphor for science, for like the progression of technology. Mm-hmm. That they are like something that shouldn't be done but is now possible. And there's all of these questions about like, is it the right thing to do? Like, have we gone too far? Right. Is the big moral question. In this movie, the dinosaurs are now a metaphor for animals and for nature and a, the conservation of nature. So there is is like all this stuff about like the dinosaurs rights and all of this like anti zoo stuff and like how do you preserve wildlife and what is man's effect on the environment and should animals be put in cages and on display which is like another valid thing, but it's just an- another one of the many things in this movie that's completely different from the first movie. Like in the first movie, no one says anything about like the rights and the feelings of the dinosaurs at Jurassic Park. Yeah. Yeah. This movie seeks to, seeks to humanize and like cutesify the dinosaurs in a way. Like that, the whole classic sequence with the baby T-Rex is like, done to really good effect but it also like demands that like 
you make that thing cute and fun and like the audience has to care about that dinosaur escaping too otherwise you'd be like well why the hell didn't they just kill it or throw it out and get rid of it like let it get eaten by another dinosaur but you see it you're like oh my god that's such a cute baby tyrannosaurus i would also want to take care of that thing you're right they don't think there's any of that in the other movies there's awe in the other movie but there's not like even the baby raptor dr grant is terrified of in the first movie Mm -hmm. like you see it and you're like oh this is cute and then he asks what it is he's immediately he's stunned and horrified i just have ludlow written down here that's hammond's evil nephew oh he caught and killed the original jurassic spark park scandal ludlow made sure the stories went to the national Enquirer and like weird non-reputable sources about the old Mm. jurassic park and they talk about this there's so much talk about like misinformation spin ndas all that stuff comes up in here which i thought was really interesting Mm. to see in a movie that old because it seems like a, a plot that you would see like those sound like plot points from something that would come out now yeah and we hear that the main characters from the first one like basically got back to the mainland said we went to an island where there were dinosaurs and they tried to eat us and then everyone like rejected their science licenses and they all lost their jobs because nobody believed them. Mm-hmm. That is weird. Or yeah, their lives would be ruined. Yeah, but like you don't think that anyone would double check? I mean, I guess like it is a crazy thing to do, but they couldn't be like that guy they're talking about did build a giant amphitheater in San Diego that says it's supposed to have dinosaurs there. Right. So maybe he did have dinosaurs. <laughs> maybe we should check it out. Sure. But again, this is all stuff that's been imagined for this book and movie. It was not in the first one. So I feel like another problem with the movie, thinking about the nephew, is that there are so many characters in this movie and none of them have characterization except for kind of our main crew. Some of them get character attributes. They have character quirks. They don't really have anything real going on. Nick chews gum. But then, like, there are, like, 15 other dudes, and they're all middle-aged white guys, which maybe is accurate to, like, what this crew would really be. Like, I will give them credit because they don't look like movie stars. They're all these schlubby middle-aged dudes. But it's like, no, we don't care about any of them. None of them have personality. They're all there to, like, bizarrely have two-minute scenes and then get killed. And it reminds me a lot of another Spielberg, David Kep sequel, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is another movie that has so many random side characters who don't have full arcs or personalities that you just don't care about. That's true. That, that movie is like that. It has like three or four people who you're just like, why are you here? You could have all been the same character. And when you think about Jurassic Park, like the 10th and 11th leads are like Samuel Jackson, and Wayne Knight in this movie. Like you kind of know who the main four actors are. And after that, it's like, I don't know who any of these people are. Yeah. I do love Ludlow, though. I think he's a great villain. I think he's underused in this film, and it doesn't Mm. make a lot of sense. But I think he's hilarious. He ignores Malcolm the whole time he's there and signs stuff for, like, this long shot where where Malcolm is asking him a question, and he's just, like, answering him but ignoring him and, like, signing papers the whole time until Engine is brought up, at which point he breaks away and looks at Malcolm finally. It's like, ooh, 
That's acting, baby. <laughs> he also says, this suit costs more than your education. And I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Basically, Malcolm is going on a press tour for dinosaurs. Dinosaurs have been canceled, and he must go on a press tour for them and for Jurassic Park. <laughs> Why would Malcolm want to do this? Why would they pick Malcolm as the man to do this? Like, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yes to what? All of that? Yes. No, yes, I agree with you, because Malcolm is, like, the chaos mathematician, which I assume basically means that, like, he's a teacher of math. High-level mathematics. He's not the two dinosaur experts that were the leads of the last movie that we care about. I mean, he's the Han Solo, you know? He's the David Arquette Mm -hmm. of the first movie. And it is so bizarre that they're like, no, the main characters aren't coming back. We're not even going to talk about them. It feels much more like a spinoff. Like, we're doing the sequel about the guy who kind of stole a lot of scenes in the first one, but then was just like sitting around for the whole last hour of the original. And don't worry, folks, he's going to sit around for the whole last, for like the whole third, (laughs) middle third of this movie and not do much. So if you liked him in the last thing, you'll love him in this. Because he doesn't really work as a main character. No. He's still charming. He has all of the best lines in this movie. And mm-hmm. I do think that even being like an inf- far inferior writing job, there are still like six or seven really quotable lines in this. And they're all by him. Mm-hmm. But that like his best stuff is when he's sort of playing off of other people or when someone else has made a crazy decision that he's reacting to. Like yeah. he doesn't really work as the Alan Grant who has to go on an arc in this movie. Yeah. Oh, also, Nick is just obnoxious. Like, Vince Vaughn in this film shouldn't have been in this movie. They should have picked someone else. And Eddie is just like, poor Eddie. Okay, so I wanted to talk about the Vince Vaughn character. Okay. And ask, like, what you think they're doing with him. Because at times, it's, like, such a weird character to begin with. We hear at first that he's, like, a photographer. And Uh that's why he's on this. But we know he's kind of a playboy, too, Mm -hmm. because he has all this stuff about, like, I joined Greenpeace for the women. Mm -hmm. And then it's revealed that he's, like, an ecological terrorist, and he's here Mm -hmm. to, like, destroy destroy any threats they make to nature. But his function in the story, I felt, is that he is being the Malcolm from the first movie, where he is there to, like, flirt with Julianne Moore and threaten Ian Malcolm's connection to his girlfriend, Sarah, played by Julianne Moore, much in the same way that Malcolm threatened Sam Neill and uh, Laura Dern's relationship in the first one. That stuff, like all the plot and character, is peppered through the first hour and then completely abandoned in the last hour of this film. And the difference is, in the first movie, it's crystal clear how everybody feels about that. Like, Sam Neill is pissed... Mm -hmm. Ellie is into being flirted with, maybe into Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Malcolm is into anything that might happen. And, like, you're tracking how everyone feels at all times in those scenes, and they're, like, fun and alive. It is not clear how anyone feels about anyone else in this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Except for that one guy who really cared about his friend and killing the dinosaur. The basic conceit of this movie 
requires you to believe that Jeff Goldblum is in a close, loving relationship with a woman who went to Costa Rica three days ago. He hasn't heard or seen for three days, and he has not thought at all what's going on with her. It hasn't even crossed his mind. He sees her and he's like, so, so why didn't you pick up Kelly? Like, I thought you were going to pick her up. <laughs> it's so weird. Like, the movie doesn't care about this stuff. Because they set up all this stuff and then it is all immediately forgotten for cool dino action for an hour at the end. And that stuff I really liked. And it's going to be harder to talk about that stuff because it's just action that is fun to watch. And not bizarre character stuff they want you to think about and never pay off. Clearly, we should not spend that much time thinking about this because the movie did not. For sure. What is up with their relationship? What is the story? And what's up with him, like, abandoning her, maybe? Abandoning the kid, having multiple kids, but he's only got one kid in the picture, this daughter, Kelly. I mean, what's the story? Yeah, I guess we infer from the dialogue, although this is not really clear. In the last movie, he says he has three kids. Oh, yeah. In this movie, no other kids are mentioned. Basically, we hear that since the original film, in the four years since the original film, the mother of his daughter, Kelly, Mm -hmm. basically left her with him and moved to Paris and like cut all ties to her daughter. And to him, who I I don't know if we're supposed to think they were still together or not when the original one happened. Mm -hmm. But Kelly is probably in the like 10 to 12 range, I would guess. So she she is one of those three kids we hear about. But basically, he is full time dad Mm -hmm. and he's not very good at that. Yeah. And all of those dynamics are set up early. And again, another thing that just will never pay off in any way whatsoever. He sees her, he's like, sees her kick a velociraptor out a window, and he is proud of her. Uh And he remembers about her getting cut from the team. What? How dare he remind her of her loss like that in that moment when she was feeling so great? He's like, I mean, come on, come on. But that's like one of the only things that pays off is that she says at the beginning she didn't make the gymnastics team and then she does the coolest gymnastics move to destroy a dinosaur at the end. Like that rocks, but that's one of like three things that are set up and paid off. And then there are like 18 other things that aren't. And I want to talk about this. The structure, as we mentioned earlier, you've got an hour of setup. You've got 50 minutes of all stories out the window. They are being hunted on this island and they're trying to escape. Then they escape. It seems like the movie would end. <laughs> There's it another really does. 20 minutes. There's another 20 minutes tacked on of another new conflict coming up and being introduced, which is that they bring the T-Rex to San Diego. And in all of that sequence, everyone except Goldblum and Julianne Moore are gone. Where is Kelly? Where is Vince Vaughn? Where is the crew for the whole climax of the movie? We don't hear anything about them. Yeah, you're right. I've never thought about that. I've never thought about where Vince Vaughn or Kelly or the old bald dude or anyone else would have been. Mostly because at this point, you just don't care. You're like ready for the movie to be over. You're like, please, if it only takes Jeff and Julianne, let's not have to bring any more people to this damn party. Let's (laughs) shut it down as quick as we can. 
that stuff is really weird, but I do kind of like it. But it is like <laughs> it is the two of them who again do not have a completed character arc driving around San Diego in a car trying to stop like a T-Rex from attacking the city. The first movie, you know, is about a couple who are like not sure where they're at in their relationship, who get separated and grow individually. And then they have to like come back together to see if they can move forward. And this movie by the end is just about two very weird hotties who have to save the world. (laughs) Who never solve the problems in their own relationship. (laughs) Like they never get any farther than where they are. Right before the T-Rex attacks a trailer, and then that's it. That's it. It's as far mm-hmm. as they get, which mm-hmm. is basically not very good. I don't know exactly who this was about, but I do have written down somewhere. There's, like, an intense, like, scene and moment, and then I wrote down, we don't even know this dude's name. Because that's what this movie keeps doing. Having, like, moments <laughs> that you, the movie makes you feel like you should care about between characters whose names... Yeah have never been spoken and who are promptly about to be eaten by a dinosaur. And if they're not about to be eaten by a dinosaur, then they're even less interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, to back it up to a thousand yard view of the lost world, colon Jurassic park. Yes. Bizarrely named. Would you say flop or bop? I'm contractually obligated. I'm like genetically motivated (laughs) It's impossible for me to give this movie a flop. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I I could not do it. But it is damn hard to give it a bop as well. <laughs> this movie. This movie is a bop. I don't know. Watch it. It's fun. It's very exciting. Watching it for the first time must be a delight. Watching it like I was watching it, where it's the millionth time you've seen it, and you're just like, oh, this is really. This is pretty dumb, isn't it? And you're not surprised by everything? Yeah, I don't know. Um, Wade, what do you think? Flop or pop? I mean, this is really hard, like you said. And to me, this is a movie of two halves. The flop half. The flop first hour and the bop second hour. And you have to get through one to get to the other. I think ultimately, I enjoy the bop hour more than I am annoyed or bored or frustrated by the first hour so i would give it a bop but just like you gotta get to that point i will say that on the positive side to like reinforce how much i enjoyed all of the action in the second hour of this movie i would definitely say that i enjoyed watching this a lot more than watching the first jurassic park I definitely absolutely think objectively the first one is better, has more compelling characters, a more complete story, just a complete story, which this movie doesn't have. But I definitely had more fun watching this movie than that one. So I would bop it. Nice. 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 Kind of reminds me of another 1997 sequel to a beloved first film in Scream 2 which is another movie that I think has a bunch of new characters you don't care about and like kind of a bad story, but then like incredible sequences. Yeah, it really brings it in with the cool directing. There's a thing that I have to mention here. One of those things Mm -hmm. is that, you know, the high hide that they have in this where they go up high and hide the high hide. (laughs) So when I was a kid, 
my dad built me one of those things out of the wreck of some some sort of something that a hurricane had busted up and it was like oh my gosh 12 or 14 feet tall and like this four-legged like tower in the backyard and i called it the high hide in honor of that thing and like would go up there and pretend that i was shooting dinosaurs from it or something <laughs> it was pretty exciting we put like a little trap door so in it cool. And then even later, it was deemed to be too dangerous by my mom. Like, years later, when Mariah was born, we chopped the legs yeah. off of it to about half height, and it stood in our yard at about a six-foot height for a long time after that and had to slide on it. It was Mariah's little playhouse. Oh. You might have seen I that one I, before. I think I saw it in that version. Yeah. 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 I mean, this movie was, like, so influential, I think, to my taste growing up and really mm. is like a gateway to horror. Mm. And like, I cannot, it cannot be overstated the impact on my taste and opinions and anxiety and dreams <laughs> from growing up until now that seeing uh, the nice Eddie get ripped in half by two T-Rexes had yeah. on me as like a nine or 10 year old child. Like, yeah. that is the most brutal kill, at least that we've seen so far. I would say probably one of, if not the most brutal, that we'll see in the entire franchise. It still is, like, shocking today. It's it's so crazy. Yeah, it's nasty. They do, like, a wishbone on him. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's run through some of the stats here. The Lost World Jurassic Park, directed by Steven Spielberg. This is his 16th feature film. And very interesting to track his journey here. After he had the one-two punch of Jurassic Park, at the end of that year, he finally wins the Oscar. Something I think that has motivated him for a really long time. The best director mm -hmm. Oscar. Mm -hmm. He takes a whole year off to spend with his family. Then he spends a year creating DreamWorks, the studio, where he's like, now I'm going to have my own studio and I'll have creative what? control, which is a huge thing. That is huge. And then he basically goes on to work on this movie. And the crazy thing is that he is trying to do it again. Because in 1997, his first films like coming out of his, I, don't, I wouldn't say retirement, but out of this break, uh -huh. is that he puts out both this and Amistad later in the year. Whoa. So he's trying again to do like huge popcorn movie and huge Oscar play. Yeah. But none of them quite hit the heights of schindler's list and the original obviously yeah wow and he does this a ton as i was looking at his his filmography this is pretty crazy in 2002 he does minority report and catch me if you can oh my god in 2005 he does war of the worlds and munich okay and in 2011 he does the adventures of tintin and warhorse no way so he really is just like out here, out here doing the one-two punch every couple of years. Wow. I mean, five times. And in all of them, I think it's interesting that it's like one popcorn entertainment movie, one drama. He's, he's serving two meals, popcorn and veggies. <laughs> Emmett can absolutely attest to this, which is, I would say, since we started the podcast, about oh. every three months, I will go... We could do Steven Spielberg. <laughs> That's true. And then I'm like, yeah, then we'd be doing it for a year. And at least we know what we were doing for a year. That's nice. 
That's nice to know one's task yeah. is nice, but it's a lot. I think that it's in the mid thirties right now in terms of the amount of films. And he's not slowing down anytime soon. He definitely isn't. I would say that this kind of kicks off like the second, not quite there, the middle era of his career, looking at it, looking at all of them laid out here. Cause you've got sort of like the golden years. Uh huh. Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., The Color Purple, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List. And then this is, I would say, like the start of an era of movies that people like where he is still trying to like do the thing he did before, but they aren't quite connecting in the same way. Mm. With the the exception, I will say, of Saving Private Ryan, which he does the year after that. But other than that movie, The Lost World, A.I., Minority Report, War of the Worlds, The Terminal, Indiana Jones 4. Mm-hmm. Like, people definitely like some of those movies a lot, but they aren't the smash hits that he had before. For sure. After that, he kind of goes in this period of like, I'm just going to do Oscar dramas. We get War Horse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, The Post. And now I think that he's like kind of coming back to, like with Ready Player One and West Side Story. Which just came out on Disney Plus. We should say West Side Story is on Disney Plus now, and um, Drive My Car is on HBO Max now. For our Oscar watch listeners, you can check those out at home. Well, perhaps I shall. But I don't know. How do you feel that this stacks into like the greater body of Spielberg's work? I feel like when the first big thing that you're known for is Jaws, you have a pretty big shadow that you were trying to fill for yourself the whole rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And then when you also managed to pull off Schindler's list and Jurassic park in the same year, then that just like increases that thing. So I'm sure he's always kind of like aware of that. There's interesting, but unexplored themes in this movie of like the work of the past unexamined coming back to haunt the people who created it, but it doesn't haunt the people who created it. Malcolm didn't have anything to do with creating it. He was just there. He was just witness Mm. to the first one, you know, like, and it attacks Ludlow, but Ludlow didn't have anything to do with creating it either. He's just monetizing it. And we appreciate seeing him get punished for trying to monetize it, but he's not really the reason the dinosaurs exist. It's, it's narratively unsatisfying in that way and i feel like it's kind of a movie where the problems with the movie are also the problems that the movie could be about like if the movie wanted to be a serious movie it could be about the problem of having created something that you don't know what to do with and the problem with the movie is that he created something that he doesn't know what to do with you know i don't know you're so right about choosing malcolm instead of dr grant or dr sadler from the first one Malcolm might be more likable than them in the first movie, but he's by no means is he the protagonist. Yeah. He's hard to be the protagonist here because he's supposed to be cutting and he's supposed to be the one like pointing out the absurdity of what people are doing. But if he is the main one doing the doing, then he's just like mocking himself, which doesn't play very well, especially not for like an action lead. If he was like the Jeff Goldblum from Thor, Ragnarok, and like really just cracking wise all the time, it might work better. And you have something that's more that increases the comedy from the first one instead of the horror. 
but instead they went darker, but then made the comic relief the lead. It's a very strange, very strange setup. It's very telling that sort of the main Spielberg thing of fathers Mm. and children, which is like this thing across his whole career, which in the first movie they put onto the main character, onto Alan Grant. And he has this whole arc about learning to like kids. In this movie, a movie that features an absentee father and a kind of ignored daughter, the like father-child arc is put onto the T-Rexes. And that's like where the Spielberg angle is coming from. Is yeah. It's about like proving that the T-Rexes are a family unit. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Lamb Before Time really did a number on him. He watched that, and he was like, oh. Well, he produced that. Yeah, exactly. He was like, oh. Mm-hmm. He was like, look at the little guys. They're so cute. He's like, <laughs> he's just like, hey. He calls up Jeff Goldblum, and he's like, hey, Jeff. I just saw this great movie. You would not believe it. The dinosaurs are talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta do another one. <laughs> Also, the year before Jeff Goldblum is an Independence Day, which uh-huh. I feel like is part of like part of the reason why he's the lead here. But mm. in that movie, he is again like co-lead with Will Smith. Uh-huh. That is like becomes buddy cop with him and Will Smith. And he's the most amazing actor to play off of other people. But like when it's just him to ground your action movie specifically. Him and Will Smith is a is a dream team, but that is so you're right. It's so strange for him by himself, or mm-hmm. with Julianne Moore, another very serious actor who is given such garbage lines in this movie. It's utterly laughable. <laughs> Wait, the one shot of Julianne Moore. I've got to talk about this. It's when she's in the tent and the T Rex has come to the tent. It's an extreme close up of her face, like lit by candlelight. And she's looking into the camera and she says, oh, no. And it holds on her for like 15 seconds. And it's this weird thing of like, are we in color purple or always or Empire of the Sun? Like, is are we in weird, dreamy romance, strange, sweaty Spielberg territory? Yeah. That's like the only distinctive really shot or moment involving her in the whole thing. Yeah. I watched both of these with Laura. Uh-huh. who hadn't seen them, uh, hadn't seen any of them before. Right. And I thought that she had a, a great analysis of this, which sort of changed the way I thought about it, which is that she said, this movie, The Lost World, is what she always thought the first movie was, which is a movie about like humans stuck in a dinosaur world, having mm-hmm. to survive and escape. There is a world where dinosaurs are still alive and going crazy, yeah. and humans have to get through that. Whereas the first movie is much more like a contained space with a couple dinosaurs and a couple humans. And there is sort of just have to see what happens in that space. I think she called the first movie dinosaurs in the kitchen, Mm, uh but it is like such a different, just whole style of movie in this one. Yes. And this movie is what all of the sequels are going to be. You you are never going to get another movie that is confined space these two people stuck together. It is always going to be like Dinosaur Island from here on out, basically. Yes. 
I'm not saying one of those is better than the other. In fact, I would say that I would rather see a movie about humans on Dinosaur Island. I'm just saying that, like, it's a different style of movie. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. This movie was written by David Kep, again, who wrote the first one, from Uh Mission Impossible in the meantime. It is based on the 1995 novel The Lost World by Michael Crichton, which in turn is based on the 1912 novel The Lost World by Arthur Conan Doyle and its 1925 film adaptation, also called The Lost World. Have you read uh, this book, Emmett? I have not. I started reading it when I was a kid after reading Jurassic Park and then like lost interest in it and have just never picked it up. I've always meant to, though. I, and I didn't know that about the other Lost World thing. I, I mean, I heard that there was another Lost World, but I didn't know that this was based on that in any way. I mean, like, the sphere of influences in this movie is so strange. And I think that's, like, really the reason for its story being so convoluted, which is basically the, like, in 1995, you've got Spielberg and Cap, who are mm. writing a sequel for to the movie. They're writing Jurassic Park 2. At the same time, you've got Michael Crichton writing a sequel to his novel. Oh. Their movie idea is about someone going and getting the canister from the original and, like, remaking the dinosaurs. Okay. And doing something with that. The book idea is about a second mysterious island with dinosaurs being discovered, Malcolm being the lead, leading an InGen team, and then there's another corporation, Biosyn, who also has a team there, and they have to like learn to work together to escape the island. That's what the book is about. Interesting. So the book comes out, and Spielberg to Cap is like, okay, don't read the book, I don't like it, but we're going to keep the part that there's a second island. That's good. And the T-Rex attacking the RV. But Spielberg is like, ignore the book. What you should base this on is the 1925 film The Lost World of the other Arthur Conan Doyle movie because I love that. That's where Spielberg is pulling a lot of the stuff from. And then on top of that, they've got all these sequences from the first one, which they couldn't do, which come into this, like the compy death scene Mm -hmm. the opening of the whole thing the scene with the waterfall t-rex the tall grass velociraptor scene that was all stuff that was either in the first book or written for the first movie that they couldn't do and in turn i want to mention there were two scenes they had in this movie that they couldn't do which were a pterodon flying attack and a race between people on motorcycles and the velociraptors were two Spielberg ideas he wanted to do, but couldn't in this. So maybe those will get recycled in the future. Maybe so. I feel like the writing process of this is David Kep with like 50 different items on a whiteboard. And they're just like, yeah, work all of this into there from all of these different inspirations. And then right before they started filming Spielberg's, idea for a third film was that the dinosaurs were going to go to the mainland and like a couple weeks before he starts filming he was like yeah i'm not going to do a third movie so i want to direct that in this one and then like (laughs) they throw in that at the last minute 
because Spielberg wanted to direct it. And he was like, I'm not going to come back and do a third. That's terrific. So that's why we have that last sequence there. Mm -hmm. What a time. The score for this, again, by John Williams. I also want to shout out this great article in Vanity Fair that came out a couple of weeks ago. It's called The Minions Do the Actual Writing, The Ugly Truth of How Movie Scores Are Made by Mark Rosso. Oh and it God. is sort of a grand expose of the thing I feel like we've talked about a lot with Hans Zimmer about how like most composers don't actually write their own music. Just basically have like their lackeys write the music and then they conduct the orchestra and get the credit for it. Is this true of John Williams as well? So in the article, there is uh -huh. a quote from someone on the record who said, I can count on one hand the amount of composers in Hollywood who I know actually always write their own music. And the lead of them is John Williams. And he said, wow. John Williams, every time, sits down at a piano with sheet music Damn. and like plucks away at the keys until he comes up with the score. And like actually writes it himself. Wow. Our king. Go off king. Go off. Especially on those drums in that one scene. Well, we've got to remember that John Williams' son is in uh, is the leader of Toto. Bless the reins down in Africa. I totally so I feel like I... they're channeling some of that inspiration. <laughs> I totally forgot. This one runs two hours, nine minutes. Same as the first. Released May 23rd, 1997 by Universal Pictures, production budget of $75 million, just a little bit, $10 million more than the first, marketing budget of $250 million, which is insane. They must have printed a lot of lunchboxes for this one. It made $618 million worldwide. So not quite the heights of the first one, but it was still the second highest grossing film of 1997 after Titanic, Whoa. which became the first film to make... The first one to make $1 billion passing Jurassic Park's record. Wow. Titanic also beat it for its one Academy Award it was nominated for, which was Best Visual Effects. Oh, mm-hmm. Because these dinosaurs look cool, but not, that, not as cool as that. But these are good dinosaurs, and there's more of them than in the last movie. I think they're, and I think they're pretty cool. I actually think it's like kind of insane how much better the visual effects look in this movie than the last one. Some of the stuff in this, I mean, looks as good as the ones they make today, in my opinion. Yeah. Like some of the T-Rex stuff, obviously it always looks better at night than in the daytime. But like some of the CGI in this is just like so much leaps and bounds better than the first one and is like pretty much on the level still when you watch it today, I feel like. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I and I love that little baby T-Rex. I think that one's a practical. Or parts of sometimes it's a practical. It's real cute. MVP, or should we say MVA, Mommy's Very Angry, as Jeff Goldblum would say. MVP for this movie, I'm just going to take Goldblum off the table since he is the protagonist. He has the arc of going from to... So that obviously makes him the protagonist. Yes. <laughs> hmm. But other than our beloved Jeff, who is your MVP for this movie? Okay, I want to shout out the old bald dude. Uh, he was hunting the T-Rex. He's cool. But MVP has to go to Ludlow. A guy who is so annoying and so like smarmy as the villain. 
that it's a pleasure to see him get eaten by the dinosaurs at the end, which is really what you want. Mm. Yeah, I wish he could have been in more. I wish we could have been clearer on why he was doing what he was doing or just like what exactly it was he was doing. But he is a good villain and he should be in more things in that sort of villainy role. Wade, who would you say your MVA is? Vanessa Lee Chester as Kelly, Jeff Goldblum's daughter. Mm -hmm. I think she's really good. I feel like she gives at least of the heroes the like the most authentic realistic performance mm-hmm. she was a little child star of the day she's in harriet the spy and the little princess if you remember those yeah i don't know i think she's great in all of the t-rex stuff i think she really grounds jeff goldblum and is like the best part of the story while there is still story and then i think yeah. once there's not story like she's great at screaming she's great at running and she has the coolest action moment in the thing where she does the little twirl yeah where and- she Kicks the Velociraptor. Yeah, super cool. The, like, stabbed dead body of the Velociraptor in the rubble is so, so horrifying. It's messed up. Proof that Steven Spielberg is a messed up dude. What final thoughts do you want to uh, bestow upon the Lost World? Well, with both this and Jurassic Park, the, the first one, like, I imagined every scene from each movie so many times and like played them out with action figures or like played extrapolations on them or whatever as a kid right Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about all that stuff you kind of have a headcanon built that has nothing to do eventually with the movie itself especially when you're experiencing them so young I think that this movie is one of the most prevalent of movies that it's like a movie that can never live up to the headcanon of having seen the movie when you were a kid. Hmm. And I think that way about like Return of the Jedi as well. A movie that I will always think of as like loving and being great and being like the best of the Star Wars movies, even though on a rewatch, that is not how I feel about it. But like that sort of thing of like, it contains so much potential that your young imagination like runs wild with it, mm. but it doesn't like necessarily deliver on everything, which as an adult viewer is disappointing, but as a kid, it doesn't matter because it's already like sparked off all of those different ideas. Also separately, I saw the Valley where a lot of this was shot out in California. I was walking around out in the redwoods where they shot a lot of the footage oh, wow. of the island. I think where, like, the st- they first see the Stegosauruses and where they're running from the T-Rex and all that, and, like, walked around up in that er- area. Very, very beautiful up in there. And it, that was, like, a magical and weird moment because I was like, I have imagined myself onto this island that I always took to be, like, a fictional place, but now I'm in the real place that that, looks like when it's being fictionalized on the screen very strange sort of thing to be in especially because out there it's much much colder you know it's cold and misty not warm and misty like you would imagine but Hmm. yeah i did i was i felt like i was gonna like turn a corner and see a dinosaur it was crazy well what are your final thoughts on this this work of cinema there's a great Great visual gag, which is the scene that's set in the blockbuster. There are two big marquees up. One of them is of Hook, uh, Spielberg's much maligned at the time film. 
uh-huh. which I think is him poking a little fun at himself because it gets demolished by the dinosaur. And the other is of a filmed adaptation of King Lear starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. <laughs> which is That's so good. funny. I missed that. You see them for five seconds and then the T-Rex runs in and destroys them. But they really cracked me up. Oh, that's too good. I know that we have talked a lot about how all of the plot in this movie is incoherent. And in fact, I would say we probably even haven't talked enough about how bizarre all of it is. Uh huh. But also, I do like genuinely love the action when it pops up. I think it is so much better directed than the first one. I think it mm-hmm. still holds up really well today. I personally like this style of movie a little bit more than the first one, and I think it's more fun. So I really do genuinely enjoy all that stuff. I would like to see some of these characters again. Obviously, Mm -hmm. the last one sort of sets the precedent that you're not going to see characters you like again, but Julian Moore and his daughter and Vince Vaughn are presumably all still out there. So I'd Mm -hmm. like to hear from them again in the future, see what they're up to. I love a lot of this movie's quotes too, especially when he says that is your worst idea in a long, sad history of bad ideas. I like, yeah, at first it's all, ooh, and ah, later it's running and screaming. Yes, and very much the first film is the ooh, ah, and this movie is the running and screaming of that equation. Mm -hmm. And all of the sequels from here on out are going to be uh, the running and screaming. I am down for that if they're well done. And I guess that's, that is really my point to bring it all together. I may be criticized for saying this. Mm-hmm. This may be a hot take, but okay. genuinely mm-hmm. after seeing this movie, what I want from these movies is all action, no plot. Ooh. I do not believe that anyone is going to have a plot as good as the first one again. If you really think you do, you probably don't. But if you really, really think you do, I'll watch it and see. Yeah. But I feel like give us some good characters who will like as they get killed. That makes Mm -hmm. it a plus. Really what I want is cool sequences with dinosaurs. And that is sort of what I am looking for from here. Starting with this movie from here on out, I want as little plot as possible and as much action as possible. You know, I think I think your point about comparing this to the Scream franchise is really going to pay off as we go down the road here. Mm. I think it's really interesting. Mm. We do just want some good action, some good some good classic scares. And all of the retconning and oh, but he was my grand dinosaur and all of that is really beside the point. Uh okay, well let's let's close the book on the last world here. What's the quiz? What what questions do you have for me today? The quiz, our favorite part of this week and every week, bumps the word where I have movies. Emmett has to guess what they are. This week, oh, you like dinosaur movies? Name 10. That's the quiz this week. I have here okay. 10 movies starring a dinosaur that were released after the original Jurassic Park. Okay. I think I'm ready. Film number one is a... 1988 drama uh, family film, I would say. It is an animated movie, hand animation. Hand animation? Hand-drawn animation. Land Before Time? 
That is correct. Hell yeah. For some reason, I feel like the most frequent bums the word answer, the land before time. Perhaps we should do all of those sometime. You always suggest Spielberg, but I like land before time. (laughs) They have wonderful soundtracks. They're all musicals. I'm not sure if you know this. I've only seen the first one, so I do not know that. But I assume that series would take even longer than Spielberg for us to do. So, Okay, film number two is a 2009 comedy film. Uh, This is a live action film. It is based on a 1970s TV series. Is it Land of the Lost? Wow, it is. It is. I'm impressed. I hadn't even really heard the of that. Slee stacks. The Slee Stacks. The Slee Well, because my mom... Okay, <laughs> so when we lived on the boat down in Florida, my mom would sometimes go and rent us, like, entire seasons of TV shows from the library. And so they would have to be old shows. And so she would get us crazy stuff. Like, we watched, you know, we watched that classic Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that the BBC did and, like, the Chronicles of Narnia that the BBC did. Mm. All that stuff's from, like, the 70s and 80s. Um, Just ridiculously corny special effects. But really, you know, really fun, really sweet. Really loved watching that. And one of those was Land of the Lost, which is such a dumb TV show. Uh, And the movie was even worse somehow. Uh, it had Will Ferrell and Danny McBride mm-hmm. go into the land of the lost, baby. Uh, okay, film number three. This is a 2000 film, adventure film. This is animated with computer animation. Is this movie just called Dinosaur? It is indeed. Which I'm sure would have been the first dinosaur movie I saw. Oh, well. Movie number five is a 2005 adventure film. What are the odds? These are probably all actually adventure films, if we really think about it. They've got dinosaurs in it. This is a 2005 remake. It was, at the time it was made, the most expensive movie ever made. Oh, is it Peter Jackson's King Kong? (laughs) It is indeed. The most expensive movie ever made, Peter Jackson's King Kong. A movie that I love, but certainly does not deserve to be the most expensive movie ever made. Well, now it is the 42nd most expensive movie ever made. So Okay, well, damn. They really, times really caught up with the old Peter, didn't they? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, you've destroyed it so far. You've really shown your dinosaur knowledge, but will you, will you make it through these last six movies? Film number five is a 1993 comedy film. It's hand and animated. It is adapted from a children's book from the 80s. 1995 hand animated. Adapted from a children's This is from the same... The same animation studio that did uh, an American tale, Fievel Goes West, and also Balto, sort of that style of movie. It's a family comedy. It's about dinosaurs being brought to the present day. And the main characters are the dinosaurs. They talk and walk around. Wow. 
I don't even think I've ever heard of this movie. I can't even like I can't even like have those vague picturings of having seen it on a Happy Meal or anything like that. What is it? It is called We're Back: A Dinosaur Story. Mm. No way. Okay, wait. <laughs> We're back. Is it? You said 1995, 93. It's the same year. Later that year. We're back. Based on the 1987 children's book of the same name. Oh, that's awesome. That looks great. This looks vaguely familiar. I feel like I saw it as a kid. My grandpa had an American tale, so I definitely saw that one. And I feel like they might have had this one, too. You got me. Okay, got next me. one. 2015 adventure film, animated CGI from like a venerable, beloved animation studio. The Good Dinosaur? Yes. The Is Good that Dinosaur what it's from Pixar. Is that is that really what it's called? Because I I had like a moment of horror where I was like, is it the bad dinosaur? Is it big dinosaur, little heart? You know, I don't know. There's many options that it could be. Then it is the good dinosaur. That is a movie that only I have seen, and it wasn't very good. The okay dinosaur, uh, famously a movie Wade has is the only person on Earth ever to have seen. Yeah, like you, 10,000 BC. That's me with The Good Dinosaur. Film number seven. This is a 2008 adventure film. It is a live action film. It is one of many film adaptations of a classic novel. Is it Journey to the Center of the Earth? (laughs) It is. Wow, you really know your dinosaurs, huh? Okay, let me let me let's go down the little memory lane here because when I was a kid I loved dinosaurs as has been previously reiterated constantly. <laughs> I also loved movies. I lived on a boat sometimes and we would watch a lot of movies on the boat. So we rented two versions of Journey to the Center of the Earth, I think one from the 90s and one from the sixties, both of them scared me so badly that like, I still have nightmares with, with visions from the stuff in them to this day. And in both of those movies, I was promised dinosaurs or like promised on the back cover and no dinosaurs appear in the film. And I was pissed as a child. I was like, (laughs) I've been frightened. I've been horrified by these images and seen no dinosaurs to boot. So, uh, well in this one, they fight a gigantosaurus i'm seeing so there are some dinosaurs i prefer to to fight a minimosaurus okay movie number eight this is a 2009 comedy again animated cgi animation this is the third film in a series although the number three is not in the title is it ice age dawn of the dinosaurs wow it is it really is i really thought i might have gotten you with some of these but your knowledge uh is deep thank you thank you okay film number nine this is a 2007 comedy film cgi animation it is from walt disney studios it is in that awkward middle period between Disney renaissances um, where Disney was just trying things. And this is one of the things they tried. 
a dinosaur movie that they tried in the middle here? A movie with a dinosaur in it. It's adapted from a kid's book, although it does not have the same name as the book. Hmm. It is about a young boy who gets up to some time travel shenanigans. Oh, is it? Oh, is it Mr. Peewee and Herman? (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Peabody. (laughs) Sherman. Mr. Peabody and Sherman. (laughs) Yes. Are you thinking of Peewee Herman? Yes, I think I think I was thinking of Mr. Peabody and Sherman. But that is not the movie. Oh, it's the guys with the top hats. No. Meet the someones. Oh, well, there aren't any top hats, but yeah, you're on the right track. <laughs> I have not a clue what those guys' names were, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, you're not gonna you're not gonna try for the point here. You've got two of the three words. Meet the Hendersons. No. Okay, that's my final answer. Okay, well, it was Meet the Robinsons. Oh, 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 okay. And there's a dinosaur in that. Never seen it. Is it good? I remember kind of liking it. It has a big plot twist, Mm. which I thought was pretty fun. But that's sort of all I remember. You know where I think of the uh, the T-Rex being very prominently is in the very beginning of Super Mario Odyssey, when you get chased around by the T-Rex, and then you can be the T-Rex. That's, like, to me, a very iconic yeah, dinosaur moment from pop culture. Absolutely. Okay, our final film today is a 1998 musical comedy film. Uh, it is a live-action film. It is based on a television show from earlier in the 90s. And it's a musical comedy? It doesn't Uh involve puppets. It does not involve puppets. It involves dinosaurs and human children. Oh, is it Barney? Uh, It is not called Barney. (laughs) Is it the Barney movie? (laughs) No. Is is it some sort of... A Barney movie? It is. It's not called this, but it is the Barney movie. It is the Barney film that was theatrically released in 1998. If you were making a Barney movie, what might you call it? I'm back. (laughs) Something (laughs) equally alarming? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Get a load of that purple nerp. It is called Barney's Great Adventure. Oh, okay. Not to be confused with Pooh's Grand Adventure from a similar time. (laughs) Well, you got me with some of them there. There's 7 out of 10 on the Dino Quiz, so you clearly know your stuff when it comes to these big old lizards. Thank you. Wait, Wait, do we have anything else that we're doing ever? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll I'll let people know that. And since there isn't any guests to plug anything today, I will say follow us on Instagram at Ooh. Cinema Bums. There's a lot of memes and a lot of videos, very fun announcement videos. So if you have an Instagram, follow us there. And uh, review us on iTunes, please, on Apple Podcasts. And write into us, cinemabumspod at gmail.com. 
and let us know what your favorite Jurassic Park movie is. And if you have seen 10,000 BC. And if you have a favorite dinosaur, let us know that too. People stop telling you after you get to be a certain age and it's sad. They should keep telling you. I want to know what your favorite dinosaur is. Okay. Well, then, Emmett, what is your favorite dinosaur? Oh, there's so many. There's so many to choose from. I used to be a big fan of the Baryonyx, which is like a crocodile-looking one. It looks like a crocodile with big-ass legs. They will chase you down. Pretty, you know, like I lived around swamps. I could just picture that thing living right where I was and eating me. So this is absolutely terrifying. Oh, you're looking it up. This is horrible. Right? Uh, Isn't it's got that big toothy grin? Oh my god, I can't even bear to look at it. Did you have a favorite? I think my favorite is probably the Brachiosaurus. Oh. Known as a Brontosaurus when I was a kid, the long-necked ones. I love those mm-hmm. guys. Classic dinosaur to me. Although I love, um, I love all the sea dinosaurs too. But of Ooh, land dinosaurs, uh-huh. that's my favorite. The sea dinosaurs are so are so exciting. It's like a whole different world down there. I used to have all the the like the walking with dinosaurs. The whole part about the like Pluridon. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to talk about incredible special effects. Talk about walking with dinosaurs. That's a whole different, that's a whole <laughs> new level. We should watch that. That's what I should be doing. I don't know what I'm, yeah. All right. Have a great night. <laughs> Gotta go watch walking with dinosaurs. Tell us your favorite dinosaur. Tell us if you like these, uh, these episodes where it's just the two of us. Also, you tweet at Wade. It's just at Wade. <laughs> On Twitter. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> to tell him that you want the release of that it's time to release episode zero. And oh, he'll, okay. he'll know okay. what that means when the time comes. You know what I will say? Our episode zero, which has never been released, is our episode on Dick Tracy. I will say that. Colin Farrell of Artemis Fowl fame playing the penguin in the Batman is playing Al Pacino in Dick Tracy. <laughs> that's what he is doing. Oh my God. See, that's worth it. That's worth it. It's a, t- it's a cultural touchstone and I feel like we're, we're losing them. We really have to reconnect with the cultural touchstones of the early 90s. I think that's a really important time that need not be lost to memory. Okay, well, twenty in 20 weeks, we're going to cover Jordan Peele's Nope, which I don't think we mentioned when we did our little recap, but I want to say that uh, a lot of people online have been saying that it stands for Not of Planet Earth. Ooh. Wow, he's always got layers to it. Once you once you open up the whole acrostic poem of what that that title could mean, it gets really exciting. Mm-hmm. Next week we're going to talk about 2001's Jurassic Park three, the first Jurassic Park movie not to be adapted from a book, not directed by Steven Spielberg. Emmett has carried a torch for it all these years. Will it stand the test of time? We'll have to see. It'll be time to find out next week. Until then. Stay frosted, just like this people were who were sleeping outside that whole time during that movie. Sorry it was weak.
Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week 